You are now listening to The Big Data Beard. This is our podcast where we explore the trends, technology, and talented people making big data a big deal. So we're doing something new in this podcast because this particular episode was brought to us through a listener. And Henry Scholes, who wanted to know if we had heard of Amuta, had connected with us through Twitter and sent us a, a DM. We are also, as a side note, on Instagram, so don't forget to uh, connect with us over there. But to be honest, no one on the Big Data Beard had heard of them. So I went through my Rolodex, which in modern terms means I went through my LinkedIn account and I found a connection. And uh, Matt was nice enough to introduce us to our guest, uh, Steve Tao, who's the CTO and co-founder of Amuda. So Steve, before you get into details about Muta, if you could tell uh, Brett Roberts and I um, a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so background on myself, uh, I, I uh, went to college at the University of Maryland, uh, graduated with, with a geography degree. Everyone's like, well, that's weird. What, that what, is is a weird. Geog- what does a geography degree mean? Uh, but, it, but, but we actually did a lot of... Uh, Kind of if you if you ever heard of GIS or geographic information systems programming type work, so I kind of went on that track and enjoyed the software programming aspect of it. And um, living in the DC area, kind of grew into a lot of um, government contracting work where we were dealing with a lot of big data and a lot of um, complex um, policy controls on that data, as you could imagine. And um, started this company 426, which uh, was government services for the intelligence community. And we would um, we did a lot of things with open source software and big data. And you know, I, th- I would argue we were one of the first people to really be using Hadoop for production, you know, big batch production workloads to do important stuff for our military. And um, that company was eventually sold. And um, you know, I hung around at a big company who acquired us, CSC, for two years, and then we decided to start Amuta because we thought we saw an opportunity um, in the marketplace. I'm sure we'll talk a lot about Amuta here in a second, but so I won't spend time on that here. But uh, but yeah, so I'm the CTO and I run our product roadmap, and and what that really means is I spend most of my days shooting emails and talking to customers. But um, my favorite part is kind of planning out the vision of the company and what we work on. Yeah, that's awesome. But, you know, so on that note, right, so you are a co-founder. So what really drove you to develop this platform? Yeah, so it's interesting. One of the uh, things I always joke about is the intelligence community has been dealing with this um, access and control problem um, for the last 30 years that now exists in the commercial marketplace. So, you know, um, I'm sure a lot of people that listen to this podcast have heard of GDPR, Um, That being just one of the forward-leaning privacy regulations that's now um, going to be upon us. There's also the California one, which I forget exactly what the what it's called, but it's um, you know based off of the GDPR. Um, And of course, you know HIPAA and and kind of internal regulatory controls have existed for a while, especially in financial institutions. So we thought, you know, some of these lessons learned on what we did in the intelligence community could be leveraged to build a platform um, that was relevant in the commercial world. So, um, you know, we've gotten a little lucky with with 
the amount of, of privacy kind of um, buzz that's been happening and and we and we see privacy controls and and data and access and control as one kind of important point in overall risk that corporations have to deal with when they're building machine learning models so we, we really have a lean towards enabling um, uh, you know compliance and ethical data science operations in these organizations and access and control is a piece of that and we're kind of growing as a company towards other components as well so steve with with that we, we've heard this term data policy snowflake and i know you've talked about that in some of your blogs in the past can you explain a little bit more about what that actually is uh the challenge behind that and then what, how amuta is addressing that challenge yeah um so yeah, there, there's a blog out there that I have on, on data policy shouldn't be snowflakes. And the, the, the idea is, um, you know, a lot of times when we go into these organizations, there's, um, we, we typically sell to large, um, you know, banks or insurance companies or, or health institutions, you name it, organizations with a lot of data all over the place. Um, and so while there are some cases where all their data is centralized, in a lot of cases it isn't, and even when it is centralized, um, people build what I call data policy snowflakes. So this is typically kind of homegrown IT solutions for enabling controls on data. So when I say controls on data, I'm talking about things like what rows are we allowed to see in the data? So if the three of us ran the exact same query, we might not be able to see the same things because of where we are in the organization and what we work on and what we do. Obviously, like if you guys were in HR, you would be able to see a lot more data than me, who's like one of the traders maybe. Um, and so uh, that typically gets baked into these databases through custom software. Um, so it's not just row level type hiding. Um, it's also, you know, masking columns from people or other anonymization techniques. And so what, why this is really bad is, so if you have these custom implementations and let's say you have a hundred different databases in your organization, it, it becomes impossible to change anything. Um, so like if, if you had to change a policy or something, you know, GDPR comes along and now you need to change how you're doing business, you know, how the heck do you do that? You have to go to every single one of these um, custom snowflakes and, and tweak them to meet the new guidelines, um, which is an impossible task, frankly. So uh, really what you should be doing is abstracting those policies into a layer above your data. We call that a control plane. And the analogy I use is kind of like object-oriented programming, where um, if you can abstract that into a conceptual plane above your data, it provides one consistent place to, to make cha uh, one change and have it propagate um, across all your data. So it makes you much more flexible. You can um, quickly respond to change and have um, consistency in how you do things. So are these like templates then? Are you, are you creating templates that you can then apply to the different data sets? Yeah, so it's it's um it's it's almost like a, a good way to think of it is is a rule engine maybe um, where you we have ways to build rules um, and in fact we put a lot of time and effort into making our rule engine um, kind of natural language if you will so really you don't have to be some sort of IT person like granting privileges on tables or anything like that writing code you can literally explain um, spell out in plain English like. I want to mask these columns for these kinds of people um, with these kinds of exceptions. And 
um, then that would be enforced on the data. And no matter what the underlying database is, you build the rule the same way. Um, and we, in fact, have a way to build those policies in a semantic way. So, um, you know, you can either reference the physical tables, like I want it to be this table and this column that gets masked, or you could, if you have entities described across your data, um, in a, like think of a semantic layer in your data, you could say things like mask anywhere there's PII and we'll be smart enough to know, you know, where to hook that, that masking policy to across your data sources. So are you saying, I mean, simply that you provide a data management platform that really helps customers deal with that, those privacy and concern and security concerns that always seem to creep into, um, data and analytics and everything along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. So, so what we typically see that the use case that we um, almost universally land in is um, an organization is trying to be more data driven. They're, they're expanding their data science practice. They've hired a bunch of data scientists. They're, they're buying data science tools. Um, you know, whether that's like driverless AI type tools or BI tools. And the first problem they always run into is, well, no, you can't have access to that data. I can't share that with you. I mean, maybe I can work on getting you a dump of this data, and then that takes six months because they have to write some sort of job to anonymize it. And then you've got like a six-month-old static snapshot of the data. So it it becomes this, it's kind of like the first problem that that everyone steps into. And so... um, it's, it's actually funny, like we act, typically we, we get purchased by kind of the data science team and they kind of promote us to IT and IT's like, oh, well, this seems like a great solution so that we can work um, with each other in kind of a, um, you know, a cohesive way. And that also pulls in the legal and compliance folks as well, because they have a way to now build policies and understand what's happening instead of having to like just write memos and word documents and hope IT implements it correctly. Yeah. So, so that's like fascinating in the sense that are you, are you going to the customers that realize that they didn't know that they had this problem or do they then run into this problem and then contact you guys? Like, how does that tend to, how do the customers see it? And then how do that, how do they pull you in? I guess. Yeah. So um, this is, probably going to lead me down a little bit of a tangent, but the, I think, I think what, um, what, what ends up happening a lot is this problem obviously has existed for a long time and they're aware of it. Um, but before machine learning, this problem was kind of self-contained in a way because, um, you know, BI tool, like the people running the BI tools would have kind of like a certain set of data that they interacted with. And then this other group had a certain set of data that they interacted with. And we see a lot of those policy snowflakes actually being baked into applications. So people tightly couple their applications with their data and all the policy logic is is baked into those applications. But now here comes the data scientists and they're like, I can't go and visit 65 different applications to get all the data I need. I need, I need kind of like this ad hoc access to all the data um, in a way that's unprecedented to the organization that they haven't had to deal with before. So I think the advent of needing to do more with your data has driven these organizations to have to figure out how to break down this tight coupling of applications to data and, 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 and snowflake policies on data. We've seen it with other people on the, on the show. Uh, one of the biggest challenges within you know the data science process, especially with machine learning and deep learning, is 
both collecting the data set and then wrangling the data set. And it seems like this really does help uh, streamline how you actually collect the data. Uh, do you have any examples or numbers to show like how does this increase productivity for data scientists? Yeah, so um, interesting you say that. We actually have a slide in our in our deck that we present to customers where we have this little bar chart, like time to data with and without Amuda. And I'm, I'm like not exaggerating, you know, we have customers tell us that um, the time from where they actually sit down, decide they want to um, work on some sort of data science project and under and, and know what data they need access to and make that request to actually getting the data can be up to six months because of what I mentioned where they have to, like the data owners or the IT group that owns that data needs to anonymize it and ship them that static copy. Um, where with Amuda, we literally take six months down to seconds because you know you have already built the policies on that data through us. We have entitlement workflows as well to gain access to data. So a data scientist could discover data subscribe to it through our system and logic can be baked into those subscriptions on how they gain access. So it's, it's, and that logic could be immediate. So it could be something like, Hey, if the user is in group data scientists and, um, you know, is, uh, is working on project X, Y, Z that automatically let them subscribe and you could actually set length of time when they have access to it. Um, so yeah, so long story short, um, yeah, we could take, month-long processes down to seconds. Does this democratize any of those skill sets that are inherent to data scientists that allow other users that might not have a data science background or the data scientist training and education to uh, be more successful within analytics and machine learning? Um, I don't know if it really helps with that. It, it's more a democ. I think of it as like data as a service and democratizing how people can get data, get to data quickly. I think what it does help with is actually empowering legal and compliance folks in the organization. Because I, I briefly mentioned this earlier, you know, before they're kind of just like the man in the middle, right? They've got the data owners on one side, they're, 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 they're telling how to protect the data. And they've got the data scientists on the other side asking for the data. And they're like, yeah, but we have to follow this rule and that rule. They, now they're empowered to literally go into Immuta, build policies themselves, understand how policies are being enforced, build reports from those policies. So um, I, I, we, we see three user personas in Immuta. There's the data owners. The data scientists, obviously, but then the legal and compliance folks, and we create kind of this symbiotic relationship, which before us was was very, um, I don't want to say heated, but like, you know, that there was battles formed kind of around how they share data and who gets access to what. So is this, um, is Amuta an on-prem or off-prem offering? Either. So um, we're completely agnostic to the infrastructure we run on. Um, classically, you know, over the last few years, we've been typically on-premise because people that are worried about doing this obviously um, haven't been moving their sensitive data to the cloud. However, that's quickly changing. And I will say that almost, almost universally, everyone that, we've, that we're working with has plans to eventually move to the cloud. And we've actually, in our platform, added a bunch of um, new support for kind of cloud native, for lack of a better term, services. So one of the things we can do is enforce all these um, privacy controls in Spark natively. And we, we did that um, typically in Cloudera type deployments or Hortonworks deployments on premise. Um, we've since abstracted that to work 
um, on the cloud where you where customers are separating compute and storage. So they could have all their data sitting in S3, for example, and they could spin up transient EMR clusters, and we can run our Spark controls on the fly in those clusters for multi-tenancy and enforce these fine-grained controls. Um, so one of the kind of big value propositions there is you could actually save money on infrastructure. Because if you think about it, if you're if you have one copy of data sitting in S3 that has all the sensitive information, and then you have to create new copies of that that are that that are anonymized for people to use, then you're like taking up a bunch of storage and adding cost. Whereas with Amuda, you could have one copy of the um, sensitive data, and we can enforce all those controls dynamically. So you're saving money on storage costs, and you're also saving money on your EMR utilization because um, you could actually have multiple users using the same EMR instance because they can, they're only seeing what they're allowed to see, even though they're all on the same um, cluster. And I'm, I'm using EMR as an example. This also would work with uh, Azure Data Lake. Okay. So, you know, on, you guys have mentioned this on your website and after talking with a couple of people that your platform works without like physically moving or copying the data. So how, how is that possible? Yeah. So, um, it, it, we aren't making what that, what we really mean by that is we aren't making a new anonymized copy of the data. Kind of what I was just talking about. Yeah. Um, certainly when you run a query, the data moves, um, to the client, um, to respond to that query, but the anonymization happens on the fly. So we aren't, we aren't requiring you to have some sort of ETL process to mask columns or hide rows or create special sets for users. It all happens in real time. So like I said, when, when, if the three of us ran at the exact same spark job, um, we might see different information based on our access levels and the policies that are being enforced. Okay. Now, one of the other, we were talked talked about your blogs earlier, and we will provide those links for all those blogs. But one of them, which I thought was really interesting, was that you were talking about this issue of privacy versus the utility trade off, and how this like tends to lead to this linkage account. Can can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I, I think there's a lot of confusion out there about um, what privacy is versus security. Um, and, and kind of, you know, getting on my soapbox here, I hear a lot of people kind of mix these two solutions together as a privacy solution, which is um, people say, hey, if you need privacy, use homomorphic encryption. Um, and, and that always gets me in a, in a you know, my, my um, makes my teeth itch a little bit when I hear that, because really <laughs> great. Ho- ho- homomorphic encryption is a, is a security solution. It's not right. a privacy solution. It's right. you either have access or you don't. Now, certainly, you don't have to decrypt the data, so that's nice because you don't have to trust the infrastructure where your data is sitting on. So, so you can um, run operations on data. But at the end of the day, you either can run operations on the data or you can't. Right? It's black and white. Where privacy is not black and white. Privacy is the gray area in between where you need to just you need to get the most out of your valuable data without without um you know uh breaking the trust of your your data subjects so meaning you know uh, if you think about a gear and that gear if that gear is turned all the way to the left that's complete privacy right and so really what complete privacy would mean is that um the data is completely randomized and and that would also mean that it's completely useless so you don't want complete privacy 
But if you turn, start turning that gear to the right, you get closer to utility and you start losing privacy. And if you have it turned all the way to the right, which I argue most people do, um, then everyone can see everything and you have complete utility in that data. So you really need to find find ways to twist that gear as far to the left, left as you can that makes sense for the use case that you're trying to solve. And so um, we actually have one of our customers, which is Daimler, um, is, it's interesting. They actually have broken down all their use cases that they want to do with their data in a way that um, where they map it to the level of anonymization that they need. So one technique that we provide in Immuta is something called differential privacy. And the way differential privacy works, um, it's been in research for a while. We can actually apply it on the fly to any relational database and it will, it provides anonymization guarantees. And the way that works is you can only ask aggregate questions of the data, first of all, which is obviously restrictive. Um, but um, so meaning you can ask questions like what's the min max average. So I could ask a question like what's the average salary for everyone um, that works at University of Maryland. And, you know, based on how specific that question is, we would add the appropriate amount of noise to that response. Noise being like change the real value. So that we can guarantee that no individual participated or did not participate in that aggregate. And so when you start asking more sensitive questions, more noise would get added to those responses. So you can actually share data with third parties with, with anonymization guarantees. No one can actually break privacy. So that's kind of the furthest to the left you'd go. And there's use cases that make complete sense for that. Right. Um, and, then, and then as you twist further to the right, those are the use cases where you actually want to protect privacy. So think HIPAA, like where you'd mask columns um, from users. But eventually, like if you're doing a cancer study, you know, if you have everyone's social security number and, and last name masked, if you get to three outliers that you think might have cancer, you actually want to get back to those individuals. Right. So in that case, masking makes sense because you might want to unmask those three outliers to get back to them. So you can, you can divide up your, your use cases across kind of this anonymization spectrum. And, and and GDPR really calls this privacy by design. So. Yes. No, well, I was just curious, and I would, God, I would love to just get you on a call to just debate security and privacy for hours. But on that note, right, so you had brought up the GDPR, and I guess the question is, you know, there's a lot of regulations, like you said, California and GDPR, I'm sure there will be others that will follow that are really putting, trying to put these rules or capabilities in place to protect um, the individual's privacy. But I guess what I'm concerned about is, do do you think that it doesn't take into play like the issues that you just mentioned, right? Do you think that, do you think that we're trying to solve a problem and not realizing what the data is doing for other kind of aspects? And I'm hoping that kind of makes sense. But I just keep thinking that we always put these regulations in place because we're like, again, trying to protect people's privacy. And I think everyone's definition of how much privacy they want changes. And a lot of that is dependent on the data that's out there and what the businesses are doing with that data and what I'm getting out of that. So do you think that there's kind of like a conflict in the sense of, again, these regulations being put into place and that are really going to end up having a greater impact down the road for businesses that are that's even more negative? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um so again, little tangent here. Uh, I like to talk about this at conferences. So at the turn of the century, you know, no one, or right before the turn of the century, nobody could take their own photographs. It took like 20 minutes to sit in front of a camera to get your picture taken, right? And then, and then someone invented the camera, and then all of a sudden you could have your picture taken 
um, and be on the, in the newspaper and, and not even realize it. And this freaked people out. And today that's kind of laughable. But back then it was like, um, you know, having your picture taken was breaking your privacy. Um, so today um, we, we rarely care if we're um, obs observed, but we do care if we're kind of like, you know, specifically identified, if that makes sense. Yeah, and and so and so really like the toothpaste is out of the tube, right? We're not going to be able to stuff the tooth, toothpaste back in. Your data is everywhere, right? And so really what the GDPR is trying to do and what these other regu regulations are trying to do is instead instead of worrying about how the data is getting collected or what gets collected, it's more about how the data is being used and giving consumers back control about how it's getting used. So certainly um, when you um, you're kind of like trading some of your privacy for some sort of um, um, benefit that you're getting from the service. So, like for example, I'm going to expect that if I order some if if I order an Uber, he, they're going to need to know my GPS coordinates. So I'm giving up some privacy under the uh, under the assumption that I'm going to get picked up. But I don't necessarily want um, all the waypoints across my trip wherever I end up going to be shared with, you know, marketers. So there's, um, there's kind of this, you know, how far can you take the data that you get for the service that you're providing to the consumer for which they um, have either consented you using it for, or there's kind of implicit consent, or there's um, a, um, it kind of falls as reasonable um, usage of that data. And that's kind of what the GDPR is pushing for. And we, we actually added, like one of, the th one of the things we're really proud of in Amuta is this concept of purpose-based restrictions is what we call it. And that's this idea of, you know, you might be doing marketing in the morning and you'd see less data when you're doing marketing, but then in the afternoon, if you're doing fraud detection, you would see more. And that seems silly because you're the same person doing the analysis, yeah. but it's not because you could actually audit the fact of how data is being used and for what purposes and kind of have that understanding across your organization. So I don't know if I completely answered your question, <laughs> but that's kind of how I think about it. No, that makes sense. No, that, that is really interesting. And I always encourage the audience, if they have an opinion on this, to uh, to jump in and, and provide us what they think. Uh, keeping along the GDPR lines, just really interested to hear how Muta has dealt with uh, you know, the, the changes to regulations, have you seen upticks in customers kind of turning to your platform for help? Uh, just how has that affected the company? Yeah, I mean, uh, GDPR, you know, everyone um, is thinking about that, of course, especially, you know, our customers in the EU that we're talking to. Um, but I wouldn't say that that is ever the sole driver of our business. Um, going to back what I said earlier, it's really driven by um, the need to do, you know, be more data driven, be um, be an organization that leverages their data and has more algorithms and, and drives decisions based on algorithms they've written rather than, you know, people making manual decisions. And that need to move quickly into that space has really driven us to enforce these controls. And certainly, you know, um, GDPR is a part of that. Um, but a lot of our customers um, ha already have these internal controls in place, especially financial institutions. And they could really, you know, um, some of them could care less about GDPR because they don't have any EU customer data, but they still need to enforce these controls um, on their data because of internal policy or concerns about like insider trading, you know, those kinds of things. 
Yeah. So Steve, you know, how, how old is Amuta? Uh, so we've been around since, uh, late 2014. Uh, the product has been GA since uh, late 2015, and so um, a little while. We just finished the Series B um, uh, a few months ago. And that's great. So I was just curious, you know, since I, I assume that you were like a fairly you know newer company, so where do you guys, are you just going to work with this platform, or where are you kind of seeing Amuta going in the future? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I haven't really talked too much about that. So I, I touched on this very early on in the call, but the we see this access, access and control layer is just one component of risk. And where we're headed is this idea of can we quantify risk across all your machine learning uh, models? And what I mean by that is kind of the, more around the bookkeeping around the data you're using. So because we are this control plane on what machine learning models are using what data, we can start to do things like take a statistical fingerprint of that data and we could we could alert organizations when you know let's say i trained this model six months ago hey your data looks a lot different than it did six months ago um, when you trained it you might want to go back and retrain it or we could set quality metrics on data um, like hey alert me when this data drops be below um, you know, 60% null values because, you know, I use this to train my model. Right. And I think most importantly, um, kind of um, thinking about fairness in models. So we could start telling people, you know, hey, you masked the race column, which makes sense, but race is highly correlated to zip code. And if you're using zip code to make a decision on like where you should offer same day delivery service, you may end up with a racist model, even though you didn't take race into account at oh, all. I love that. That's great. So, so, so those are the things we're thinking about in terms of, you know, how can we leverage, um, for lack of a better term, this position of power that we're in and, and the access and control and understanding what data is flowing where to, and to let organizations build in all these kind of like, uh, higher level, higher value um, alerts and understanding of what's happening with their models. And when I say we, I mean like we aren't literally feeding that back to Immuta. I just mean like yeah. Immuta in the organization can understand all this. So Steve, if you look in your, in your crystal ball uh, a year from now and let's say five years from now, what do you see some of the the trends in the, in the future of the analytics market, the, the data market and, and AI in general? Oh boy, tough question. Um, we just well, got we're just mean, getting started too. Now. <laughs> Good job, Brett. <laughs> um, I just I think um, I think people think that we're further along with machine learning than than most organizations really are, and so I think I think I think these problems that we're talking about today are just going to come become more and more prominent. Obviously, I'm biased because I built a company that tries to tackle these problems, but I just think that. Um, this world of building applications that kind of do six different things for, for analysis, like they kind of baked heuristics into buttons that people click. I think that world is going to go away quick, quickly. And instead we're going to tear down those applications and, and build, um, models that are more dynamic and can change and make faster and better decisions and be more data driven. And because of that, all these things that, I mean, you know, the finance world has been dealing with, with this for a while. There's a regulation out there called 11-7 um, that kind of provides guidelines on how to manage risk with your models. But considering 
the materiality of the predictions you're making with these models, like these these risk concerns are going to become greater and greater. Like if you're if you're Netflix, like making up like promoting a movie someone should watch, it's not a big deal if your model screws that up. But if you're like making um, decisions on like who should get a home loan or not, like you want to make sure that you've managed all that risk. Yeah. And so that's my guess, one of my biggest kind of issues that I've always tried to bring up or have these conversations with people with regard to data analytics is this problem that I feel like we're never really addressing is this, the bias. And, you know, we talk about it a little bit on the news, but I don't, it's like it only gets addressed when it gets made public. And I just don't, do you really feel that businesses are addressing these things that they're taking that into consideration? Um, you know, all of this aspects um, that they can be biased in their models and, and create, you know, outcomes that really weren't intended to, <laughs> to achieve. Yeah. I mean, it, it happens. All, I mean, there's a bazillion examples. Yeah. This, right. And, 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 and I don't think it's because they don't care. I think it's because it's really, really hard. I think it's, and, and you know, self-promoting again, shamelessly, but like, it's because they don't have platforms in place to manage this stuff. They don't, they can't even define what risk, what risky columns are, nor are they probably collecting them. Like they're probably like, Oh, we don't want to collect race. And in some cases they're not allowed to collect race. Right. Maybe you should be. So you could tell when your um, when your models are racist, you know, you, you could build those correlations and understand um, when, even though you're not attempting to be racist on purpose, right. If you knew you know, that that zip code was highly correlated to race, then you could avoid being racist. So I think I think the organizations are worried about these things, and financial institutions have had to deal with this for a long time. But um, beyond them, not so much. Insurance, I guess so too. But um, and so it's it's just having these platforms in place and understanding what data is going where, how it's getting used. Like, but we're just it's so nascent. I mean, it's just like data scientists in a corner kind of building models and then moving them to production. Like, how do we wrap that more into a process right. that everyone understands? Yeah, but I, I think to your earlier point, we're so uh, in, in our infancy of this that we're, we're just still trying to evolve and try to get there. So as the, as we progress, some of these things will work itself out inherently. I think we had Doug Merritt on a few weeks ago on the podcast, and he said if artificial intelligence was a baseball game we wouldn't even be in the ballpark yet right we're not in the first inning we're not in the second we're not even in the ballpark i think we're still so early on that a lot of these problems are just just showing up and we just need to figure out how to uh how to advance them right so steve uh i wanted to thank you for uh coming on and talking to us about what you're doing with data governance data and what immune is doing we are going to shift gears now and we're going to go into the rapid fire We've learned a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal. In a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. Pew, pew. How scared should we be of AI? Uh, a little. I mean, I, I think I think in the end we need to do it, right? But the it's just managing all the, that risk stuff that we talked about. What is the latest book you've read that you would recommend to our listeners? Um, what was the last book I read? Um, or listened to. A lot of us listen to uh, to audiobooks. Yeah. 
or not. Well, so let me. I, so I'll I'll give you my favorite book because I don't I can't even remember the the last one I read to be honest. It's that I'd want to recommend. Um, Guns, Germs, and Steel is my favorite book ever. That sounds but, cool. Uh, it's it's like I said, I'm geography degree, but it's like this whole story. Anyway, I don't want to dive into it, but uh, you should check it out. It's a great book. The we title the title alone sounds very intriguing. No, that's what I'm saying. We're like, oh, I want that book. <laughs> so if you have a song to play when you walk on stage, what would it be? So so everyone makes fun of me for saying this. I don't listen to music. I'm a sports talk radio guy only. All right. Really? So, uh, so, <laughs> so you, which is so funny, like you don't have an at bat song, right? Like you're walking on and like about to hit that ball out of the ballpark, and you don't want you want like silence. Is that how you want it? <laughs> no, no. He wants like three guys arguing about how great Tom Brady is. That's exactly what he wants. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Along those lines. All right. So no, the next question: funny. What piece of technology is making your life worse? I, I literally this morning just went into Slack and tried to change all my settings because I was starting to feel overwhelmed with yeah, like how, just like I've got the like FOMO like terrible FOMO and I feel like I need to watch every channel like a hawk to help everybody so um, it's just like it's just um, so I, I just went in there this morning and changed my settings literally right before we got on this that's hilarious the big data beer team actually has a FOMO channel on Slack so that we share pictures of wherever we're traveling or the food that we're eating to the rest of the big data beer team members just to make sure that they, they get extra jealous. No. Yeah, well, I, I took myself out of that channel. No way. Thanks. <laughs> well, the cool, I have the, enough of those. <laughs> the cool kids still are on it. Oh, All right. adorable. Next so question. Adorable. What is your biggest personal money pit right now? Ha, this is going to be fun. my wife, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh my well, gosh, I mean, it's I get, terrible. I get, I, get, I get a new Amazon box on the on the doorstep every day. I don't even know what the hell they are. <laughs> well, maybe she's buying you stuff. What Never. show are you binging on right now? Uh, again, this is going to be me like being weird, but I, I really don't watch that much TV. I, I Typically, I just... I'll watch sports if I'm if I'm in front of the TV. So Maryland football is okay. uh, or Maryland basketball is really my go-to. Okay, and I was just curious because uh, it's right before the holidays that we're doing this podcast recording, and there's obviously a lot of alcohol involved uh, with it. I was just so curious, what is your favorite beer of all time? <laughs> of all time, um, I- like if you like like this is you're about to be. You're on death row, and they're going to give you a beer. A what would you know? 1984 Coors Light. <laughs> it's a great. Well, it's a so, great year for Coors. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, you know, I, I think Dogfish 60 Minutes is probably my favorite. Um, but the you know, I kind of cut IPAs out of my life on Did purpose. You really? I was just I was getting fat and just like it gave me terrible hangovers. So I just I just stick to the um, you know you joked, but I usually just go for a Coors Light because that just is easier. Oh I my feel, god, my heart better. is broken. Like <laughs> I don't I'm yeah, okay. I'm gonna cry now. So on that note, now that my heart is broken, Steve, I just just want to thank you so much for your time and giving uh, Brett and myself and our audience a great update on Amuda. And I'm so glad that um Henry was, you know, able to ask us and we were able to bring you on board. So thank you for all your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, um thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard Podcast. The music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. Check him out on iTunes or Spotify.
It would also be pretty cool if you reviewed us in your favorite podcast app. It really does help. Thanks for listening.